Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Many cities across the West were developed far away from any sort of reliable water source. In our region, it takes a massive system to bring water to those who rely on it. When you first learn about it, the the concept of a Trans Mountain diversion is crazy. We'll have more on that. Plus, we explore a new survey that delves into the experiences of people living on the streets in Colorado. That and more, coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. The Colorado River supplies drinking water for some of the West's biggest cities, but a lot of them lie outside the watershed. Canals, tunnels, and pipelines from the river keep water flowing to their taps, but the infrastructure also puts pressure on the fragile Colorado River, especially in dry times. From Aspen Public Radio, Alex Hager has more on one such system at the top of the Continental Divide. High up on Independence Pass, on the Continental Divide at more than 10,000 feet, the winding road passes by a critical piece of water infrastructure hidden off among the trees. As we look upstream, we see the headwaters of the Roaring Fork River coming in. Christina Medved is with the Roaring Fork Conservancy. And to our left right here, this is the water from the Lost Man Canal coming in here. About 80% of Colorado's water falls on the western side of the state, where snowmelt in the mountains trickles down into rivers. But about 80% of Colorado's people live east of the mountains. And thanks to gravity, that water doesn't flow to them naturally. So for the last 150 years, engineers have created a massive plumbing system to fix that. And up at this dam, it's really easy to see and hear how the water gets split up. Medved and I hike upstream from the dam, right alongside a rushing river of mountain snowmelt. So the sound that we hear right now is of the undammed portion of the Roaring Fork River. Just a short stroll downhill, it's a little more tranquil, where the dam has reduced the flow to a much narrower, calmer stream. And now we're on the other side of the Roaring Fork Diversion Dam. So the sound that you're hearing here is what's passing through, making its way down to Aspen and the rest of the Roaring Fork Valley. The water that gets pulled away into the tunnel flows into a reservoir, then into another reservoir, then into the Arkansas River, and finally onto the Front Range. It's called a trans-mountain diversion. These systems provide drinking water for some of the Front Range's biggest cities. Same is true for canals and tunnels that keep Salt Lake City, Albuquerque, and Los Angeles well-watered. But these systems aren't without critics. When you first learn about it, the, the concept of a trans-mountain diversion is crazy. It's, it's, it seems wrong, it, it seems um, antithetical to the health of the river, and, and I have to say, all of that's true. That's Andy Mueller, the general manager of the Colorado River Water Conservation District. His group was set up in the 1930s to oppose these diversions and make sure that there's enough water for the people on the western side of the state. The idea that, that a large population center hundreds of miles away can pull water out of a stream and, and bring it to their uh, their city for their use is, is hard to accept under our, our current um, ecological and environmental values that our society holds. 
Mueller says the issue is those current values aren't written into law. And the way the rules are now, if you want to put a river's water to use hundreds of miles away from its source, you have every right to do so. It might just require a plumbing system to get it there. But right now, there's just less water to go around, period. The Front Range is currently drought-free, but those places in the mountains that provide a dependable source of water for everyone in the state, they are deep into a drought that's left snowpack and river flows way lower than they should be. I think that we need to work on um, making sure that the water balance occurs, um, that, that in a time like this where we have an imbalance, that, that those uh, Front Range diverters really do a good job of coming back and making sure that we um, that they reduce their uses when their damage is so significant. But on the front range, those diverters say they're getting better at listening to the folks on the other side when they put up a distress signal. Nathan Elder is the water supply manager for Denver Water. He says over the last two decades, their per capita water use is down by more than 20 percent. Everyone in Colorado you know, needs to decrease their use, and, and we have seen that, and we have been successful with our conservation efforts and, and customer messaging and watering rules. The fact of the matter, he says, Colorado is in too deep. The plumbing is there. The demands are still high. And until foundational laws on Western water management change, this is what we have. It has to work together with, you know, water from the West Slope uh, moving o- over to the East Slope. Because, he says, you can't just pick up whole cities and move them to where the water is. I'm Alex Hager in Aspen, Colorado. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River and was produced by Aspen Public Radio with support from the Walton Family Foundation. On Monday, Denver Homeless Out Loud, a local advocacy group, released a report sharing the lived experiences and recommendations of people living on the street. The group surveyed a sample of 150 people experiencing homelessness. The survey focused on the issue of sweeps. That's when law enforcement removes people and their property from an area when tent encampments are cleared away. The report's findings show that the way these sweeps are carried out is not always in line with official policy and recommends new practices and priorities that could better help people experiencing homelessness. KUNC's Ray Solomon spoke with Denver Homeless Out Loud's Therese Howard to learn more about the report. Denver Homeless Out Loud just released this report, Swept to Nowhere. Can you tell me about what prompted you to put this together? Yeah, so this report uh, was uh, conducted roughly six months to a year after the uh, passage of the lawsuit settlement um, with the city uh, regarding the seizure and destruction of people's property. Right. That's the 2019 settlement with the city of Denver that requires a seven-day notice before an area is swept and storage of property that has been removed. Yeah, so... uh, there's a lot of uh, nuance to that in terms of how that's playing out on the streets. And that's kind of what this this survey gets at, you know, how that's actually playing out on the streets, um, because the city is still trashing people's property and in many cases is not giving proper notice. So back to the survey, what did you find? First off, uh, what we found is that the large majority of people that we surveyed, so 80, over 89 percent, had experience with sweeps. Um, and the times ranged from one time in the last six months all the way to over 10. Um, there was a large number of people that had been swept over 10 times. 69% said that they most commonly moved to a nearby location. Very significantly, 54% had never moved to a safe or legal place after a sweep. 
So, you know, if, if the city is wanting to, you know, make the case that these sweeps are to connect people to services, these numbers speak for themselves. One of the most striking pieces of data is that 70% of the people surveyed eventually at some point moved back to a block that they were previously swept from, 70%. So again, are, you know, are we really talking about um, effective sweeps here uh, when 70% of people are moving back to a block that they were previously swept from? The report also includes recommendations from those same people, from people living on the streets. What can you tell us about those recommendations? Yeah, so uh, the overwhelming recommendation from the street community, 83% of people requested that the city de-emphasize sweeps altogether and put focus on finding better options and housing. 91 out of 109 people who um, answered this question about their preferred location chose house as uh, their preferred place to live, and tent is second and shelter is third. Nobody chose shelter as their first option. So really the underlying recommendations here are that the sweeps be ended, that sanitation resources be provided for folks living at encampments at those locations, and that we shift our energy and resources to creating housing, opening up housing um, that it's being hoarded by the rich for poor folks. That's the underlying recommendations. In addition to that, cleaning without being displaced. So the city calls these cleanups, not sweeps. Um, They're actually sweeps where human beings and their property are being um, displaced and property being trashed. You know, the the recommendation here is that we actually move towards a a situation where it is cleaning and not sweeping. Um, And so there's a number of steps that can be taken to give um, proper notice, to have proper trash receptacles, and uh, other steps to ensure that the areas are being cleaned and not sweeped and nobody is being displaced, but but there's proper sanitation resources being provided. So Therese, you've gathered all this information in this report. What are you planning to do with it? What's the next step? We are taking this to the public. Then we will be presenting the report to city council, the um, homelessness and housing committee on August 18th we will be asking that city council implement these recommendations, um, that they take immediate action, basic steps to you know, protect due process, change these policies and practices, and so that people's rights are being protected. Again, ultimately, the underlying recommendation here is that sweeps be ended, sanitation resources be provided, and housing be created for all. These steps are basic and would help the residents of encampments tremendously in having some stability and having, you know, the ability to work towards real goals um, such as housing. Why is it important to seek out and to listen to the experiences and the recommendations of people who are living in tents on the sidewalks and in public places? People are not choosing to be on the streets because they want to. As is seen in this report, the large majority of folks want housing. Housing is not affordable, it's not attainable, people can't get it, they're stuck on the streets, and now put yourself in that position. Imagine, how are you going to keep your property safe? How are you going to keep yourself safe? How are you going to find somewhere to go to the bathroom? How are you going to try to pull pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get a job, get housing, so on, while you're on the streets navigating all of these dynamics trying to, to, to watch your basic survival gear, it's, it's a nightmare. You know, we have thousands of people 
living on the streets because they have no other choice. And um, so, you know, we really need to get away from thinking about aesthetics here and start thinking about human lives and start thinking about the allocation of our resources and the hoarding of resources. And we need to change that dynamic or else we're gonna keep having people on the streets and that's nobody's fault, but our society who refuses to say housing is a human right, who refuses to say a bathroom is a human right and who just wants to pretend like people can disappear. You can't just disappear, it doesn't happen. That was KUNC's Ray Solomon speaking with Therese Howard with the advocacy group Denver Homeless Out Loud. And you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The economic recovery following the COVID-19 pandemic is continuing, though there are a few wobbles here and there. Some of that is due to the rise in the more transmissible Delta variant of the virus, coupled with uneven rates of vaccination across the country and here in Colorado. And then to add to the uncertainty around the economy, there's the I-word that keeps popping up in our news feeds lately, inflation. Here to talk more about inflation and how its impact is likely to play out here in Colorado is Dan Micah, a Fort Collins-based reporter for the financial news site ETF.com. Dan, thanks for joining us. Hello. I want to start with gas prices. Obviously, that is something drivers are noticing right now as they fill up their cars. That's right. So the the, the latest inflation numbers from uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, for those who aren't uh, following uh, economics or inflation too closely, 2% per year is kind of the, the benchmark that most policymakers like to set in terms of inflation, which is just the, the general measure of how much more expensive things are getting. The price of gasoline has risen about 45% over the last 12 months. That is obviously very expensive. Now, there's a couple caveats to that. First of all, in kind of the, the, the midst of the pandemic last year, as a lot of people stayed home, didn't travel, didn't get on planes, the price of gas got down pretty low. I think uh, here in Fort Collins, uh, I remember paying maybe $1.20 to $1.50 uh, over the summer when I was filling up. So obviously, when you go from a place where not a lot of people are driving or flying to this current period where it's the summertime, it's peak travel season, uh, people are vaccinated, they're confident, and they want to go out and see the world again, uh, that obviously will drive prices up and that'll create a big demand spike. And there's also a bit of an impact uh, locally, uh, particularly in Weld County, which relies so much on its on its oil producers, not just to create jobs and support that industry there, but Weld County itself gets a lot of its revenues from oil royalties uh, and the fuels that are produced out of the ground there. The oil industry is still coming back, even though oil prices have reached about $75 per barrel. You know, that's a much higher price than you know, the 40 or so that was kind of at this point last year. So that affects the the viability of producers in Weld County. And also there's just kind of this inability for uh, producers and in particular oil refiners that turn uh, raw fuel into the stuff you put into your cars to kind of meet this incredible demand uh, that we've seen so quickly. Yeah. And like you said, a lot of people are, are getting out after spending last summer not getting out driving around. And another point to consider is used cars. And what is the impact here? I'm wondering if that reaches beyond people who are in the market to buy a used vehicle. Right. So in the same vein, over the last 12 months, the the cost of used cars and trucks have increased about 45%. 
And that is, again, because people uh, not only want to get out and do road trips, but people are returning back to the office. That is going to matter because uh, it's not just people who are going to the lot and trying to buy a personal used vehicle. The used vehicle lots are also perused a lot by, uh, by rental car agencies. Uh, and when you have a, a major tourist attraction like Rocky Mountain National Park in the area, and since we're also located near uh, Denver, which uh, is bringing in plenty of tourists, that is going to create more pressure uh, if you are trying to buy a, a vehicle uh, and you're in the used market. So we're talking about, you know, if you fly into DIA, you might be paying more. Oh, yeah, for sure. What about outside of gas and cars? What do the inflation numbers tell us about the current state of the economy and what's coming next? So that's the really interesting thing that is the really big caveat to this entire conversation that, we, that we've just been having about, about gas prices and car prices. If you go into the, the numbers and you strip out the cost of fuel and, this, and the cost of used cars and other items in kind of the basket of, of items that someone would normally be buying, and you strip out the things that are really heavily affected by the reopening. So, for example, uh, airline tickets, hotel, uh, hotel uh, rooms. If you strip that down, the, the month-over-month change uh, to the inflation rate was about 0.9%, which is still high based on the, the past couple of, of years. But that really says a lot about how slowly it's taking the economy to really unravel itself from all of the bottlenecks and all of the big changes that it's had to do, simply because consumers at this point last year and over the past couple months were not flying. They weren't going into hotels. They weren't going into restaurants as much. You know, the economy changed so quickly in the spring of 2020 that it's kind of having to take its time to unravel itself for multiple different reasons. Dan Micah is a reporter for the financial news site ETF.com and is an economic news contributor for KUNC. Dan, thanks so much for speaking with us. Anytime, Aaron. The Olympics kick off in Tokyo later this week, with opening ceremonies slated for July 23rd. Though popular Colorado sports like skiing and snowboarding won't be at this year's summer games, fans can look forward to the introduction of a new winter sport in 2026, ski mountaineering. Back in May, Colorado Edition spoke with a 19-year-old Summit County ski mountaineer who broke a North American record for most vertical feet climbed in 24 hours. On April 27th, Grace Staberg climbed more than 56,000 feet at Copper Mountain near Frisco. She skied up and down the mountain more than 21 times. Grace is currently ranked fourth in the International Ski Mountaineering Federation's World Cup standings. Colorado Edition's Tess Novotny spoke with her about her record and where her sights are set next. For those of us who might be a bit lost, Grace started by explaining what ski mountaineering is. It's pretty much the equivalent of backcountry touring, but racing, you put skins on your skis, uh, normally mohair skins, and then you can ascend, and then you'll rip your skins off and you descend. So it allows you to climb mountains and ski down, and then ski-mo racing is essentially the same, but just with speed speed in mind. And do you also do schema racing? Yep. I'm primarily a racer, actually. I haven't done any big objectives. That would be like skiing, I don't know, Denali or K2 or something like that. I, I tend to race more. How did you first get involved with ski mountaineering? 
I first got into it through running. I, I love running in the summer and I love endurance sports. And I was looking for uh, something in skiing that would allow me to combine that with my love of love of downhill skiing and Schemo offered a great option. I really like that it has kind of the endurance part of, of Nordic skiing, but it also allows you to explore the mountains and get a bit further afield. So that's kind of how I got into it. I was a runner first and then it offered a, a great option of something similar to do in the winter. Great. Kind of like another step up, it sounds like. So at 9 a.m. on Tuesday, April 27th, you begin your first of more than 21 ascents up Mount Copper. What was motivating you to attempt this feat? I had been over in Europe all winter racing the World Cups, and I think I just really wanted something that would allow me to kind of bring the community together in Summit County since I had been away all year. And I also think I was looking for a bit more of a more of a challenge because I love the World Cup races. They're short and super fast and really challenging technically, but I was looking for something, I think, a bit longer. So the 24-hour record was a great opportunity to, to get both of those things. Yeah. And I understand you skied up and down the mountain for a full 24 hours until the next day. How did you keep your like physical and mental energy up during that time? I would say the biggest thing mentally was having people there to pace me. I had a lot of great friends and training partners come out and pace me. So they all kept the the energy really high and they would talk at me in the middle of the night to keep me awake or tell me stories or whatever it took to keep me energized. So that was really helpful. And then physically just making sure that I like ate and was drinking every hour, I think was probably, probably the biggest thing. And then as long as I was was fueled the whole time it wasn't wasn't an issue yeah did you ever get close to like falling asleep on your skis I feel like I can't even stay up for 24 hours not doing something that physically intense I actually people had warned me about like the 2 or 3 a.m hour but I'm generally up around 3 anyways so the morning I didn't think was all that difficult but I had a really tough time around like 10 p.m., 11 p.m., and I was definitely starting to doze off a little bit. And yeah, I would close my eyes for like a minute, and then all of a sudden I would stumble a little bit on my skis and be like, oh, dang it, I was I was starting <laughs> to fall asleep. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that you were just trying to make sure you were like eating and staying fueled throughout that time. How did you eat while you were actively skiing up and downhill? Yeah, so every lap at the at the bottom we would ski in and the people who were there to crew for me would hand hand me a few different types of food. So I had a lot of gels and I also had drink mix in my water bottles. So both of those were really easy to get down while I was skiing. And then at the bottom of each lap I would normally try and like take a few bites of some kind of real food, like just in the few moments where I wasn't wasn't moving. When it was all over after 24 hours, what was going through your mind? I think at the beginning, I was mostly just really relieved to be done because I was so tired and I had been going for so long. But um, then in the next next few hours, it definitely kind of started to hit me. Well, like how much just, yeah, how much I had skied. And I think then the biggest thing was just that I was really overwhelmed with gratitude and yeah, just so thankful for all of the people who came out to help and all of the people who had supported me in it. Yeah, I think it was it was a really powerful thing to see. 
And I understand that it's pretty rare for an American to be such an accomplished ski mountaineer. Um, the sport is much more popular and developed in European countries. What do you want other American athletes to take away from your success in this sport? I guess I just hope that it encourages other Americans to, to give it their best shot and to try competing in Europe, um, because by all means, it's possible. I think I was really encouraged by the the Americans I had seen going over to Europe and doing well, like currently like John Gaston and Cam Smith are two of the guys who tend to do fairly well in Europe. But there are also a lot of women like Nina Silich who have done really well in the past. Uh, Nina raced a while back, but she she won World Cups when she was racing over there. So I hope that I can contribute even even just a little bit as much as they have in helping encourage other young athletes from here to to shoot for their their racing goals even if they might seem a little unlikely breaking a north american record at 19 is already such a major accomplishment what are your goals going forward i think eventually i would love to to try this record again but that's probably a few years off my more immediate goals are on the the world cup circuit i would love to win more world cups and shoot for the the overall world cup title so that's what i'll be focusing on on right now i race as a trail runner in the summer but it's generally in preparation for the winter so my world cup goals are definitely at the the forefront right now that was colorado editions tess novotny speaking with 19 year old ski mountaineer grace Stayberg. That's our show for today. For many of us, this summer has been all about getting back to our favorite pre-pandemic activities, but it's not that simple for people with compromised immune systems. We'll have more on that in tomorrow's show. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 